The Enneagram. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Jeff Cook. And I'm TJ Wilson. And this is Around the Circle. I'm walking slowly. is a map of the human personality. It's a tool for navigating relationships. It creates language for what motivates us and helps us to look at the way that we look at everything else. Most importantly, the Enneagram's a mirror because sometimes you need help seeing yourself. My name's Jeff Cook. I'm a philosopher in Greeley, Colorado, and with me is TJ Wilson, businessman, lover of theology, and Enneagram ninja. Hello. Boss, we are on episode two of our Lord of the Rings deep dive. After three introductory I mean, podcasts. Is, yeah, isn't this technically like episode five or something? <laughs> I should have said that. It, it is the fifth, but it's the mm. second, but it's the third. Right. You know, it's yeah. it's these uh, multi-film properties. You got you to gotta do that sometimes. Yeah. And also, we're nerds and we talk too much, so <laughs> <laughs> it happens. It's fine. I find myself going back to these films and seeing things, uh, getting emotional about things that I wasn't emotional about mm. in the first few times that I watch them. Sure. Nearly everything with Theoden hits me really hard now. Mm. Never hit me before. But it's probably because I'm an older person right. <laughs> than right. I was when I first saw these movies. And he's got a lot of end-of-life issues. Not that I'm wrestling with end-of-life issues, <laughs> but... <laughs> But he's 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 there's a lot of stuff about him getting older sure. and uh, his relationship with his daughter really hits me. Is there anything that is comes across differently to you now in like most recent watchings that just wasn't something that hit you before? Not really. Uh, I I think that there's there's nothing in particular that stands out that, that sort of fits this mold. But I think that like one of the great testaments of these stories and how good these films are is that that does happen is that that Mm -hmm. in in subsequent rewatchings and and rereadings of the books like we're we're drawn to different parts where we're attached to different narratives because of our stage of life and i think that's and that's just because these stories are told so well that like when you come back to it you see something new and I think that's good storytelling. Truth. Yeah. Well, because I've gotten into Theoden more, I've also gotten into our next character quite a bit more, which is Eowyn. Yeah. So we're wrapping up the sixes. Uh, we gave the skinny on six, but you want to say something quick uh, before we get into to this last six on our list? Yeah. The uh, So quick thing about sixes is they are the center of the head triad. They are uh, perceptive and and they are looking for sort of security and support, and they uh, they doubt themselves, and that doubt sort of spreads outward from themselves to the rest of the world. They're looking to be prepared. They're looking for support from outside of themselves. And uh, usually, when you see, when you hear descriptions of sixes, they are uh, described as sort of the most fearful. Uh, or expressively fearful of all the types. Bang. I said this to TJ off mic that I shifted three characters. One of them was Elrond, 
uh, coming in, I decided, no, TJ had it right in our typing throwdown, and there's one to come. But Eowyn was one. I had typed Eowyn as a five, and on my typing list, I'm going to move her to four. Oh, interesting. So uh, why don't you make the, the case for Eowyn as a six, and then I'll jump in with my four plug. Sure. I'm going to be a little bit distracted because now I'm going to start thinking about whether she's a four. Uh, but I could also make the the case real quick if you want. No, I, uh, my case is pretty easy. Um, so we talked about uh, uh, Samwise as a six a lot in the last episode. And I think that Sam is a, a good display of the type of fearfulness that we often talk about when we talk about sixes. And I think that... Aolin represents sort of the other end of the spectrum of sixes. So one of the big things about sixes is that that there's this spectrum of of fearfulness. And on one side, you have the phobic, outwardly fearful, like expressing their fears kind of person. And on the other end, you have what we call counterphobic, which is the, the easy way to say it is, is it's, the type of person who is going to say, I'm not fearful, let me show you how unafraid I am in response to the f- same fears that they feel. So the Enneagram community is is embracing this idea that it's, it's a, it is a spectrum that, that sixes move across throughout their days, throughout their lives. Like it's, it, they're not necessarily one or the other. Uh, but I think that Sam represents a much more phobic six, and I think that Aowen represents a much more counterphobic six in the sense that she is going to push through the boundaries that are placed on her because she does not want to be ruled by that kind of fear. And I think there's a lot of different ways that we can point, a lot of different places that we can point to. But the fact that she dons the armor and rides into battle, regardless of the fact that she's not supposed to be there, that to me is is a big counterphobic six move. That's also a big thing I see there is that she is uh, engaging problems very emotionally. Mm-hmm. And that's also a six yeah. side of things there's a struggle with a lot of the language to for i imagine some to even type her as an eight because so much of the things that she wants to say is about battle and wanting to go in and fight for mm-hmm. people right um but i see all of that though at least the ways that it's it's expressed by this actress who is phenomenal by the way mm-hmm. i love this actress um, which I cannot remember her name right now. It's Otto is her last name. I forgot her first name. Okay. Sorry if you're listening. We think you did a great job. <laughs> uh, but I, I think that the, the way that this actress sort of presents that quote-unquote aggression is much more in a I'm going to show you that I'm not afraid yeah. than it is a genuine... Like, like the the way that eights come at the world is much more sort of fearless, mm-hmm. and and I think that that Aowen's quote unquote fearlessness is it's a shield, yeah, yeah. Materializing is reckless. It's yeah. Miranda Otto. Is, there we go. Is this actor's name Miranda Otto? You're amazing. 
Things that I see at four is primarily negative, just to begin. It's not fear. I think that it's envy. I think mm. that she sees herself as really unique and is routinely elevating her uniqueness when she speaks. She doesn't speak very often. I do think that the withdrawn side of fours you can apply to her, especially in terms of getting attention from her father and from a prospective lover. I think she really wants her dad and she really wants Aragorn to come to her to tell her that she is loved and valuable. And that's a lot of where the energy in this character comes from. Yeah. I also think that she sees beauties that others don't see, not only in herself, but particularly when Mary comes into the fold she is able to see his strengths and the qualities he brings and spends a goodly amount of energy and time trying to nurture them, foster them, and elevate them. A true esquire of Rohan. It's not even sharp. Well, that's no good. You won't kill many orcs with a blunt blade. Come on. But core, I think, to this character is a sense of her own uniqueness She's not like the other women. She can fight. You must lead the people to Helm's Deep and make haste. I can fight. No. You must do this for me. She can get in there, and she wants others to acknowledge that. Hmm. I think those are all great arguments. And Boom. I think that her... Yeah, I still see a, a lot of those same points as... Six, the the thing with Mary, you might get me on the thing with Mary, but it seems to me that her attachment to strength and authority figures is part of the six looking for that support outside of themselves. Mm-hmm. Like her, I mean, she's technically not Theoden's daughter. Oh, that's right. But she attaches herself to him, and, and their, their relationship is painted very much in a, in a um, father-daughter kind of way and uh, even specifically spoken to as such. But there's, there's an attachment to her king, her father, her authority figure, because he is her support, and there's a sense of loyalty there. And then Aragorn comes along, and, and there's, she is drawn to his strength, to, his, to him in a way that, like, like, I'll attach myself to him now. And then when he sort of casts, not casts her aside, but but dismisses her, then like she very quickly finds Faramir. And like there's there's almost a, a, a seeking an, a, an authority figure. And and I I I feel we would be remiss in failing to acknowledge the the fact that she is a woman in a medieval type story. So obviously she's supposed to get married and find a husband and, and be the, the quote-unquote wife figure. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Tolkien is, is trying to, to move that along, but there, that element still exists. So of course she's continually looking for a new husband. Uh, but I, I, it seems like she is, is seeking something outside of her to offer her support while at the same time trying to show how strong she is and that she doesn't live in fear. Yeah. Yeah, this the stuff with Faramir I, I see is much less about the story and much more about 
tying everything up with a bow because yeah. you need Gondor and Rohan to come together and right. it's embodied in these characters. Right. And and it gets much better treatment in the book than it does in the yeah. movies. But true enough. We're not here to talk about the books. So <laughs> I want to speak about one scene which I think is real interesting and it's prior to the final battle and it's when Amir comes to her and essentially is trying to push into her fears. Her reaction doesn't seem very sixish to me. It feels like he is elevating his language is essentially talking about how terrible battle is when referencing Mary and that only men should fight in it. You should not encourage him. You should not doubt him. I do not doubt his heart, only the reach of his arm. Not that sixes can't elevate and be reckless, but she turns in that moment. Why should Mary be left behind? He has as much cause to go to war as you. Why can he not fight for those he loves? That ends up being a, in a response that I think is interesting because it moves away from I'm going to be reckless and it moves into I'm going to be relational. Mm. And there's there's a lot of that. Uh, she says nearly the same thing to Aragorn later in comparing herself to Legolas and Gimli. You do not command the others to stay. They fight beside you because they would not be parted from you. Because they love you. Very relational and very envious. Yeah. I suppose that, that was the clue for me. The, sure. the, the, the envy, I think, that's in, in a lot of her relational life and her sense of self is what pushes me there. Yeah, I get that. I'm going to respond by ignoring your point <laughs> and <laughs> talking about what, the scene that was sort of pivotal for me seeing her as a six, which was when... She is swinging her sword around, uh, practicing moves in one of the halls, and Aragorn walks up to her. You have some skill with the blade. I fear neither death nor pain. What do you fear, my lady? And, and she says... A cage. To stay behind bars until use and old age accept them. And all chance of valor has gone beyond recall or desire. And and there's this moment there where, like, I I almost laugh when she says that. I fear neither pain nor death. Because, like, every single moment where she's actually in a battle, <laughs> she is riddled with fear. <laughs> that's a good call. It's like, <laughs> I fear neither pain nor death. No, that's nonsense. Of course you do. Like, uh, like that moment seems to me like the kind of pushing against her fear to make sure nobody else thinks that she's fearful. Yeah. That you see in really counterphobic sixes. Yeah, I'll, I like that. I like yeah. that as an answer. I also like that you're one of the few people who ever has acknowledged, I heard your point, but I'm just going to move on and pretend it didn't happen. Because <laughs> <laughs> I also think... I, I think there's a really solid argument for four here mm -hmm. because even, even in the midst of, of the point that I just made, she is setting herself apart. Yeah. Uh, not only as, as a warrior, mm -hmm. as a female, yeah. as a woman of Rohan, 
She's saying we are different than everyone else. Love that on the Rohan side. And obviously the line that is most associated with this character is about her understanding that she is different. I am no man. The last four scene they'll elevate and then we can move on is her awaking to the dream that she had of the great wave. The writers want to put this in her mouth. It's it's something from Tolkien. Tolkien had these dreams of great waves, but she wakes up. She's in this blue gown. She's on a couch by herself in the middle of a this great hall, and she grabs Aragorn's hand and tells him about her dream. I dreamed I saw a great wave climbing over green lands and above the hills. I stood upon the brink. It was utterly dark in the abyss before my feet. And it just seems to me like the sort of thing that a four might do in Mm. terms of notice how deep and emotional I am. And how significant this is. Yeah, there it is. And it had this very cool way of presentation to it. Yeah, I get that. that, That's what I got. (laughs) I like that. You win one. Ah, we're gonna. I need to come back, so, <laughs> so if I can have just a few. One of the great things about one. this podcast, the just this one, we're gonna hit a six, seven, eight, nine, and one discussion uh, yeah. in this one. So we're moving from the sixes to the sevens. We're gonna talk about one Peregrine Took, otherwise known as Pippin. Which, like, why do they all have two names? Because <laughs> Tolkien loves names. What the heck? <sighs> it is the case that when Gandalf starts being called Mithrandal, or whatever, I don't even know how to pronounce He's it. He's got, like, 17 different names in the movies. Yeah. Like, every character refers to him by a new name. It's like, come on. That Gollum is making up a new name for himself. Seriously. You know? But also this comes from someone who is given, like, whose birth name is a nickname. So I don't get the two names thing <laughs> because I only have the one. You're on the, just, just got, got two layers going for you. Um, everything within me wants to move away from Pippin as a seven. I don't know why. But when, when we come to Pippin and I'm watching the movies, the most obvious thing is that, those two uh, buffoons yeah. are, are, are two sevens that are just lighting <laughs> everything on fire. <laughs> and for whatever reason, I'm trying to move away from, from seven for both of them. But what's the skinny on sevens? And let's talk about Pippin. So uh, sevens cap off the head triad. Sevens are in that same fear space as fives and sixes, but sevens are looking to deal with their fear by essentially running away with it. They want to enjoy life. They want things to be fun. They want everyone else around them to have fun, and they don't want to miss out on the opportunities that are in front of them. They don't ever want to be stuck. By the way, to everybody I offended by calling Mary and Pippin buffoons, I was... No, Mary and Pippin are buffoons. (laughs) Not all Good. sevens are buffoons. Yeah. <laughs> we we might edit some of that. Okay, so. <laughs> uh, well, what do you got for Pippin as a seven then? My, my big point on Pippin as a seven is that he is, there's a sort of aggressiveness to his inability 
to control himself. Like he he's constantly doing sort of whatever he wants because he wants to see what will happen. Mm-hmm. And and you have to pair Mary with him in a lot of these adventures, but I think Pippin represents it much more clearly that he always wants to see what's going to happen. So he they they light they find the biggest firework in Gandalf's stash and they light it inside a tent. Mm-hmm. Like it it's supposed to be shoved into the ground and then you light it and it goes off and it shoots. Like it's a bottle rocket basically. That's huge. And they're inside a tent and they just like they find it and light it because they think it'll be fun. That was good. Let's get another one. Marriadoc Brandybuck and Peregrine Took. I might have known. Uh, they're stealing vegetables from uh, Farmer... Is it Farmer Maggot? You've been in the Farmer Maggot's crop! <laughs> because they, they're just having fun and they think it's harmless and they're just sort of doing what they want. They go on the adventure because they don't want to be left out. And, and you start to get into, like, as the adventure rolls on, you start to get into a little bit more of what I think is, is Pippin's sevenness coming out in the way that he is, he is the, the one taking this whole thing the least seriously. So be it. You shall be the Fellowship of the Ring. Right. Where are we going? That's, I like that. Yeah so yeah. so talking about the minds of Moria when he uh just like he's just fiddling with this arrow and accidentally knocks the thing into the well which makes the huge noise and it's not because he was being like that moment I think he gets a bad rap because he was fiddling with an arrow sure there's a curious george element to this character yeah. I don't know if curious george is a 7 but yeah things are breaking as of all the inquisitive hobbits, you Peregrine Chuck are the worst. Right. <laughs> right. He just he just wants to see. All right. So one of our favorite illustrations is uh the ice cream with sevens. Yeah. That a second scoop is always better than the first. Mm-hmm. A second firework is better than the first. That's the first thing he says after he blows himself up in the tent is let's get another one. Right. And then he's the one who's asking about second breakfast. And Sam says, you've gotten into Farmer Maggot's crop again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's yep. just, we're doing it again. Goes, He's done this You know before. it would be fair. Yeah. And of course, he plows through all of uh, the tobacco, and Mary has to give him some extra because right. he smokes too much. Right. And when he's, when Treebeard takes them to that little alcove, and this is, <laughs> this is part of the extended scenes, and Mary is taking a nap, and he wakes up to Pippin drinking the water that is allegedly making him grow. Mm-hmm. And like Treebeard said, you're not supposed to have any. It's like, I'm pretty sure if Treebeard said anything about it, he said nobody's supposed to have any. And here's Pippin. He wants to know what it's like. Yeah. He wants to know what's going to happen. Let me let me pitch three th- quick things that, I'd, oh, by the way, I think that Pippin, I'm going to argue for Pippin as a nine which seems quite strange to me every time I look at it. And yet I come back to this and I'm like, there's at least a case to be made. First, 
I don't think Pippin has an anchor in the future. Mm-hmm. I don't see him scheming. I don't see him thinking things through. The the line that we already hit uh, about uh, we're going to take the ring to Mordor. Great. Where are we going? What? Sure. I, it seems like sevens are a lot more thoughtful about the future, even if it's making a bunch of stuff up in, in the future. Mm-hmm. That'd be one. Second, he gets mocked for not being intelligent all the time, which is just something I don't associate with sevens. Sure. Uh, generally, in my experience, sevens are always, always, I don't think there's a, a lot of counterexamples. Sevens are almost always very, very thoughtful. And yet he's the butt of jokes of not being thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And it's not that nines are dumb, but, <laughs> but sevens, <laughs> I think, at least, don't, don't have that side. The other thing that really hits me is when he gets stressed out, he doesn't act like a one. And he actually, in a place of stress, pushes into stuckedness. Mm. He kneels in front of Denethor and pledges his service to him. Boromir died to save us, my kinsmen and me. He failed defending us from many foes. Pippin. I offer you my service, such as it is, in payment of this debt. And it's like, that doesn't seem like the motive of a seven. The motive of a seven, I imagine, is to flee, which is actually something he does say at another point in time. And he says, uh, Well, Minister Very impressive. So where are we off to next? Oh, it's too late for that, Pettigrew. And Gandalf says, uh-uh. You pledge your service <laughs> to the steward. You know, you're in the military now, buddy. It's something like that. Yeah. Actually, here's one last thing. Mary is taught when Mary and Pippin get separated, Mary has this reflection to Aragorn where he is the woman saying, He's always followed me. Everywhere I went. Since before we were tweens. I would get him into the worst sort of trouble. But I was always there to get him out. That doesn't strike me as the description of a young seven. Sure. It seems like the seven is the the one that's the instigator. Sure. And so that's what I got. Wait, what do you think about those? Because I don't know what to do with those four things, really. Yeah. I think that we have not encountered a seven who is a little bit dumb. You and I personally? Yeah. Right. But they're out there? I'm they've gotta be. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's gonna be representations in the very intelligent and the very Pippinish in all types. He's he's not very quick. <laughs> and it's like there's there's nothing wrong with it. It's it's just no. like Pippin's a little bit dumb, and part of that is is for comedic effect and and to move the story along in ways that like we need to have someone who's not thinking appropriately about the consequences of his actions. Mm-hmm. And and Pippin is a is a great scapegoat for that. So I I think his like looking to the futureness is is wrapped up in him not being very intelligent. I think that he he can't clearly see the future, but he wants to get there. I think he's looking to what's going to happen, but I don't think he he can see what's going to happen. And and part of that is because he's a little bit dumb. Mm. I like that. The, I don't remember all of your other points, but but the one in particular 
the the moment of him kneeling before Denethor, I don't see that as a stress move in the sense of I I see that as one of the most mature moments that mm. Pippin engages in in the entire story. Okay. Yeah. A seven who has never taken real responsibility for his actions in in this moment of you you could call it stress and I want to specifically lean on it being a mature move takes responsibility and does the right thing and the absolute right thing in that moment is to offer himself as sort of payment for the debt of Boromir's life. Yeah. Here's where the nine materializes for me. Nothing about Pippin looks like a nine to me, except for all the, the motive kind of stuff. One, I think he has merged so severely with Mary that he's almost ta- he's taken on that kind of energy. Hmm. So that'd be one. Two, he strikes me as always terrified in stress. So just assuming that he's terrified and stressed, there's really only three numbers that he could be. He could be a nine who goes to six. He could be a five that goes to seven, or he could be an eight that goes to five. And he doesn't look like a five or an eight, but the nine might be there. The third thing is kneeling in front of Denethor, if that is a stressful position, that does make a whole lot of sense for a six, for, for a nine picking up the tools at six. I'm going to pledge my service. That's a loyal image, but it's done so that he can bring peace to a situation in which he is brought, you know, he's had to tell a father, your son died because of me. Those are the sorts of things that begin to emerge for me. When he gets connected to Gandalf, his personality feels like it changes sharply. When he's away from Mary and now just with Gandalf, He's still him. And the nineness, actually, his positive outlook in terms of problem solving is still all there, even though I think it's a lot more aggressive than most nines would be. But he, the maturity that I think you're bringing up, I want to say is much more about that. If he, if he were a nine, it would mm-hmm. be he's with this very mature person, and so he intuitively understands I need to change. Sure. I mean, that might work if I thought that Mary was a seven. <laughs> And I, well, Mary could still have a bunch of, I'm, by the way, I just, uh, for future reference, uh, I will be going with you as I think yes. Mary's a two. I, yes. think this is a good, <laughs> I don't know how I missed that. And I totally did. Uh, we need to understand where, where is the energy coming out of this relationship? Right. Uh, and I, but I, I, I don't see his, his, his fearful moments I don't see them as quote unquote specific, like as, as stress moves in the way that we talk about Enneagram movement. I, I think it's legitimately just fear. I think, I think, and, and he seems like the type of character who is trying to avoid those fearful places, mm-hmm. which can easily apply to nine and seven. Nines are trying to avoid conflict at all costs. Mm-hmm. Whereas seven are trying, sevens are trying to avoid like the negativity in general, and there's a, there's a a charmingness about them that that is trying to get out of trouble d- 
despite them getting into trouble in the first place. Nines would tend to avoid trouble, period. Whereas sevens are going to get into the trouble and then try to charm their way out of it. I, this was actually, as you're speaking, it's reminding me that it's the relationship between Gandalf and Pippin where I think a nine-ish personality really comes out. The conflict avoidance, I think, that's in Pippin when Gandalf, the eight, is routinely <laughs> pushing him, hitting him, mocking him, you know, demanding that he grow up. Mm-hmm. It feels like he's always kind of averse to that conflict as opposed to pushing into it with an aggressive energy. Yeah. And I I see him in in the first part of his interactions with Gandalf. I think he's always getting into trouble with Gandalf. And then after the Palantir, I think that I, I think it changes because to me, the Palantir represents the moment where the seven has to has to grow up. He cannot escape how terrible that situation was, how terrible that experience mm-hmm. was, and he has to go through it now. And and so his maturity starts to come out as post Palantir. Would that not work in the same way for a nine who doesn't want to be controlled? He he utterly lacks control after the Palantir and has to. He needs something else now. It's forcing him into action. I don't think it's forcing him into action any more than he was active before. Yeah. He's he's making better choices with his action now. Mm. I will give you points on the there's stuckness all over that situation. Mm-hmm. I can't possibly get out of this situation where the Dark Lord has seen me and thinks I have his most prized possession. That, that's being stuck. And it's because of my behavior. Yeah. There, because yeah. of my immaturity, because I couldn't not look. Yeah. We, we have to say that he's a desperately immature, youthful character. Yeah. And this is his first big stumble or whatever, and it's real big. Yeah. He does feel like he's stuck in the military. And when there's the death scene, what appears to be a death scene... When uh, he and Gandalf are waiting to be killed, and Gandalf speaks words of comfort over him. I didn't think it would end this way. End? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we almost take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back. And all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. What? And See what? White shores. And beyond. A far green country. And a swift sunrise. The words I don't think are targeted to a nine. They're targeted to a seven. Mm -hmm. Like you're stuck in this spot. But here's this grand opening that's yawning open for us. And we're going to enter into this new world. Mm -hmm. All turns to faded glass or whatever. Yeah. 
I feel, I feel like that's more of a message for a for a seven. I agree. It's second breakfast should have been. I should have just looked at second, yeah, breakfast, second breakfast and just moved on. <laughs> I mean, there's there's arguments to be had. I think if you know the right nine, I I would have second breakfast, <laughs> but I I wouldn't push about it unless I was really really comfortable with the people I was with. He treats it as something that like this is just known. What about breakfast? We've already had it. We've had one, yes. What about second breakfast? Do you, do you not know about these things? Don't think he knows about second breakfast, Pip. What about elevensies? Luncheon, afternoon tea, dinner, supper. He knows about them, doesn't he? I wouldn't count on it. There's future problem solving. Yeah. <laughs> it's when it comes to his appetite. His food. <laughs> His gluttony, if you will. All right. And how many how many of the lamb's bread did they eat? <laughs> Four. Four. I forgot about the lamb's bread. All right. Well, you're going to need to describe an eight so that we can quickly move through all of the threeness that's in Gimli. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the eights. Uh, eights. We move into the body triad. Uh, anger is central for eights. Um, they use conflict to test the boundaries around them, and they are completely fine with that. And they are very interested in who has the power because at the core of them, they do not want to be controlled. They do not want to be left vulnerable to someone else taking advantage of them. They don't want to be betrayed. And if the leadership in front of them is incapable or inept or lacking, then they will take control. They are very aware of power dynamics and they are very concerned with making sure that nobody has control over them and that they do not appear weak. I thought all of that really described Gimli well through the Fellowship of the Ring and then there's something that changes hard and he becomes a three. <laughs> just everything <laughs> about the character after that first movie just screams three to me. Aside from one of his last lines in Fellowship, which is... That it has all been in vain. The Fellowship has failed. Yeah. And he's very aware of their lack of success. Yeah. But when there's a new goal, see, uh, saving Pippin and Mary, he perks up. Yeah. That is handsome, Orc. So I'll, I'll say from the outset that uh, uh, we we mentioned this in previous recordings, but that I spent a long time coming up with an argument for Gimli as a three because it's what I needed in order to shoehorn in the nine types. <laughs> And I, I think there is a, pr a really solid argument for a three. But I shifted back to eight before I got through the end of the movies. And so I'm going to be arguing for eight, but also I agree with a bunch of the points that Jeff is going to make for three. <laughs> so. just, get, just getting ready to get dunked on. Here we go. Yeah, we'll see. Come, Gimli! We're gaining on them! I'm wasted on cross-country! We dwarves are natural sprinters! Very dangerous over short distances! Struggling. Struggling to keep up. Gonna yeah. reframe that sucker. Yeah. 
or make sure that or, you understand that this is not a weakness that we are wasted on cross country that i am very strong when it comes to this other thing reframed well this is a thing unheard of an elf will go underground when a dwarf dare not oh oh i'd never hear the end of it it's a lot of appearance there mm-hmm. in fact we could name a handful of quotes from this character where it's all about it's all about the appearance the appearance yeah. in the yeah. in the eyes of the elf and there's so much about him not wanting to look foolish or weak or small and so much about this character can be easily ascribed to three and eight. There's so much about threes and eights that sort of meet in this middle place of not wanting to appear weak, not wanting to appear foolish. Mm -hmm. Both types project an image. And one of them is very concerned. Threes are very concerned about what other people think. And eights are very concerned about protecting their vulnerability. Truth. We actually mentioned this in the last episode that this is real common in American culture yep. for threes to want to appear strong like eights would. Right. And that would be an argument for, for him as a three over here. Yeah, <laughs> it would be if he was a three. Not only does no one toss a dwarf, I, obviously that could show a lack of strength, but there's also an appearance going on there and a defense of his race. <laughs> when that the parallel of that happens in two towers where he turns to Aragorn who being the nine that he is is apparently a place of uh, what would you call that safety yeah, yeah. Gosh, me. <laughs> don't tell the elf yeah not so there's this you're bringing up all things that I've already thought about <laughs> sure, yeah. in my art. Like these are, these are great arguments for threes, but um, specifically thinking about the not tossing a dwarf part. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a, there's a very clear element of perception here. Like he, he doesn't want the elf to know that he's going to be tossed because he doesn't, he doesn't like it's, it's all about his appearance, but also recognize that this specific moment he is entirely like he immediately acknowledges that he is not capable of jumping that distance mm-hmm. and and gives the power to someone who can solve this problem. Like th- this is one of the places where I see a clear difference between threes and eights is that threes being continually concerned about their image, they're going to be less likely to acknowledge their legitimate, I don't want to say faults, but like moments of weakness, inadequacies, they're going to reframe it. Whereas an eight who sees this like like this one moment, I'm not going to be able to do that. Also, please don't tell anyone. <laughs> like put it right out front. Messaging. Like he's, he's not going to tiptoe around this. He's not going to reframe it. <laughs> He's going to say, you have to toss me because this has to get done. Seems like the, the three answers just a lot more obvious in my mind. I disagree. I need you to toss me. Don't tell the elf. We, we need to make sure that 
you know, <laughs> there is clearly a, I want to have an appearance in terms of the competition I'm having. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Threes and eights, both highly competitive. Yep. Now come out. The, the fact that he waits to lie about his number after the ballot Helm's Deep, Legolas comes back. Final count, 42. 42. Then Gimli starts making oh, fun of him. That's not bad for a pointy-eared elvish princeling. <laughs> I myself am sitting pretty on 43. <laughs> Just, you know, and of course you know he's lying. He hasn't even counted. But but the appearance of the number matters. You, there's no reason for him to have to for us to assume that he's lying. Of course he's lying. We don't know that. I think we know it. <laughs> we, we have no reason to assume that he's lying there. Aside from the fact that he's a deceptive character. That that is a significant assumption. He was twitching because he's got my axe embedded in his nervous system. Okay, I got two more then. When uh, they come up on the burning pyre, find the belts of the uh, the two hobbits uh, yeah. of, of Merry and Pippin. He doesn't say we weren't strong enough to protect them. He says we failed them. Yep. He's. I think he's the only character that uses the word fail mm. in all three films. I think I might be wrong about that. There you go. At least on his radar. Yeah. The gift that Gladriel gives feels. Like it is received, and it's received in his heart. Hmm. Oh, henceforth, I will call nothing fair unless it be her gift to me. What was her gift? I asked her for one hair from her golden head. She gave me three. That, that feels like a real emotional thing. I think there's actually an argument for eight on this as well, but yeah, the, to, to me it. that that is a um, the innocence mm-hmm. of <laughs> wanting a single strand of her hair is significant to me. He's walking through that forest and he says, "Stay close, young hobbits. They say that a great sorceress lives in these woods, an elf witch." Of terrible power. All who look upon her fall under her spell. Frodo, Frodo, Frodo. And I've never seen again. That sounds like somebody meditating on their vulnerability. Yeah. Yep. And that's why I said Gimli is an eight to the core in that first movie <laughs> until the end. With perhaps the, the desire to say, hey, look at look at these hairs. The whiz-bang thing I saved till the end was, of course, when he fell off of his horse and jumped up real quick and said, It's all right. It's all right. Nobody panic. It was deliberate. It was deliberate. <laughs> Just covering appearances. Yeah. It clearly was the case you fell off a horse. That was deliberate. That was deliberate. Yeah. Uh, I agreed with you until I switched to eight and saw that as him protecting his his own weakness the, uh, just all of these things yeah mm. the thing about being natural sprint sprinters no one tosses a dwarf that was deliberate like all of these moments are like he does not want other people to see him as weak because dwarves are small ah uh, sure he is continually and constantly projecting an image of strength 
Yeah, and again, they're just holding hands right there. Projection of strength. Yeah. So the projection is the three, the strength is the eight. Yeah. The motive comes out in the projection, I think, less about the strength. Well, the strength, do eights want to everyone to know that they're strong in those same ways? So here we enter into the messy, messy area of race and culture. <laughs> because Gimli go. is a dwarf. Yeah. And dwarves being smaller than everyone else, but also they have their own type of culture. So they are um, bearded and like they even make jokes about how even the women have beards and that the, they live in the mountains. They're hardy. They're, they're, they're strong. They're stocky. They're the image of a dwarf is that of strength and longevity and, and power and even control. And if Gimli were a three, so much about his behavior is about him upholding the image of a dwarf. Mm. But if you fold in the uh, the complexity of actually having other dwarves on screen, which we bring in with the Hobbit movies, then you also have to account for the different character types that are there. And like in particular, the thing that really swayed me was the scene where Gimli is getting drunk. Towards eight? Yes. Ah, okay. Gimli is one of the most sort of lewd characters in the entire story, in, in all six films. Uh-huh. And, and I think that, like, his, his sort of brazenness, the way that, that he pushes to make other people uncomfortable, like, he, he says inappropriate things in order to provoke several times. And, and in particular, the, the scene where he, he, he and Legolas have a, essentially a drinking competition where he's already, he's already had a few. And, and like the things that he's saying are, are, are lewd is the best word for a story that isn't disgusting. Sure. But on top of the projection of strength, there's also a, the challenger nature of Gimli, I think, moves me significantly away from three into eight. I, th- I think there's an argument to be made that Gimli is upholding the image of his people. Over, yeah, on the three side? On the three side. But yeah. I think you can't get away from the fact that he is bringing a lot more of the the kind of... I don't want to say gross, but gross aggressiveness that eights typically embody. Sure. No, I like that as an, as an argument. Yeah. Um, the lustful side, I think, is there mm-hmm. more than the deceptive side. Yeah, agreed. There's the reframing side that comes up, but I don't think there's a... And there, I think that we haven't said it yet, but I think that there's a much stronger case for anger as an yes. underlying feeling than shame. Yes, agreed. Two last points for me. The there's when he's getting dressed in the chainmail, it's clearly too long. This this weaves back into defending your people, but also reframing his image in the eyes of his friends. It thumps to the ground. And he says It's a little tight across the chest. Right. Emphasizing, have you seen my huge pectoral muscles? Right. <laughs> right. 
again, it, it just weaves right back into our discussion about whether or not it's projecting strength. <laughs> when right. I think about that, I think the last line between he and Legolas is just glorious. Uh, it's kind of like the death of Spock. It just, I cry every time. I thought I'd die fighting side by side with an elf. What about side by side with a friend? You'll notice uh, the undercurrent there, though. He, in his last moments that he thinks he's going to be alive, is real interested in his image. Or he's really interested in in establishing that there is a boundary between us. Because you're a despicable elf. <laughs> is that something? Is he, but he's making the joke? Yeah. And and in a, in a, in a confrontational way. Yeah. In a, there you go. It's in a confrontational way. That's a good way to put that. And the um, uh, this is another one that can't. I I think there's an argument on both sides, but but I think the the when they are like the the very start of the Battle of Helm's Deep, and you you pan the camera across and you see all of these men and elves standing at attention on the the parapet walls, mm-hmm. and then there's Gimli who's stuck behind a wall because he's short, and he's like. <laughs> jumping and saying, What's happening out there? Shall I describe it to you? Or would you like me to find you a box? <laughs> and and Gimli's laugh in that moment, to me, strikes me very much as like the type of acceptance offered when eights get their crap thrown back at them. <laughs> sure. Like they're, okay, they're co- constantly pushing and they're, they're pushing their boundaries in, in these like, like I, I'm going to say inappropriate things to see how other people react. Yeah. And, and when other people push that back at me, we're equals now. Mm-hmm. And like the, the way that he laughs at that is like, like you get me and I get you and we're going to be okay kind of moment. Hmm. All right. Well, it's not unheard of for me to be way too overconfident in my case going in. (laughs) We'll go to the book. By the way, on the projection of strength argument, I think projection generally wins on, on these just in terms of just the case itself. Hmm. I seems I think to, he's always you, trying to make sure people know he's strong. Yes. The desire to always make sure people know is all you need to say. That he's strong. Because a, a, a true three will adapt to what their audience is looking for. And a true eight doesn't always need other people to think anything about them. Eights don't need to be seen as strong by others. They need to know that they are strong there's a lot of eights who could care less what other people think about them well but but Gimli is like it's always in moments where he looks like there there's something about him that seems weak falling off the horse I think would be a case in point in this he's not vulnerable there's there's nothing like yeah he is who falls off their horses (laughs) fools he's he's not vulnerable though yeah, he's, he he's he's with people. He's with people that care about him. Yeah, but but he still needs them to think that he's strong and capable of riding a horse. Okay, so there was a janitor at our middle school 
when I was in middle school. And he had the responsibility of getting on a ladder, going up on top of the middle school gym and get it in. There was something up there that needed to be retrieved. Well, he slipped, mm-hmm. fell off the, the roof, and fell on his back onto the ground in front of all the middle school kids. And it's like a scene out of, you know, Peanuts, where all of us, are, our, our eyes are huge when we're watching this. And he yeah. got up, looked at us, it just walked off, <laughs> like trying not to limp. <laughs> didn't reframe anything. Didn't yep. say anything. <laughs> it's just that strikes me more as how an eight might handle falling off a horse. Sure. Well, all eights are different, of course. But. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Go into the book. Go to the book. Is uh, Gimli a three who prefers, who is concerned with social status, or an eight who's concerned with material and sexual dominance? (laughs) (laughs) Who wrote this book? (laughs) Yes, the dwarves that go swimming with little hairy women. (laughs) Yep. Also, uh, the argument could be made that that's social status he's boasting in uh, his sexual prowess there the argument can be made <laughs> see a three that seeks validation or an eight who seeks power yes i wonder if a eight wouldn't go for the ring he goes for destroying the ring at the council of elrond what are we waiting for let's destroy the ring that would be Social validation, as opposed to getting up as, you know, Boromir does and just taking the ring. Or, I'm the one who's strong enough to do this. Let's just destroy it. Yep. I suppose part of his character is he is somebody who wants to appear powerful. Mm -hmm. And so much of the humor is based around that character. He ends up having that Shakespearean role as the, the humor. Does he seek prestige like a three or control like an eight? I think he's more about control. What does he want to control? Uh, his own space, the things that, that he has power over. I can't name any places where he's really interested in controlling his own s- space. Don't get in my space. doesn't come out of his mouth. Speak quickly. Give me your name, Horsemaster, and I shall give you mine. I like that scene as... For him as an eight, I do think that's a very confrontational scene that he is very comfortable in. That also could be if Aromir is an eight, that would be two eights coming together, and that generally actually is what two eights coming together looks like. I would cut off your head, dwarf, if it stood but a little higher from the ground. Right. Is he scared of failure or stirred by failure? I would say stirred by failure. Why? Because I think that with the exception of the two times that he says the word failure, Uh he is constantly moved to action when things are going badly. Okay. Is he adaptable like a three or forceful like an eight? Forceful. I think he's entirely forceful. Does he become devious like a three or become intimidating like an eight? Damn. Um, things are breaking <laughs> against me. <laughs> so that's <Is> he, intimidating. Does <laughs> he become competitive or combative? Both. <laughs> His c- competitive nature comes out in a combative way. And it, it, he is only competitive with Legolas. 
Oh, that's a good yeah, that's a good way to put that. Yeah. But he's combative with most people. Yeah. I think that's right. Also very loyal to a very small set of people. That yep. might be worth na- noting in terms of eights. Threes are generally want everybody. Eights want their people. Right. He's a my people kind of person. Yep. All right. Three that is smooth or an eight that is crude. Crude. We talked about that. <laughs> three. See a three that's well mannered or an eight that's defiant. Defiant. But for a dwarf, I mean. Right. Again, he's, look, he's there, looking pretty. There pretty is strong. a reasonable <laughs> argument to be made here going down the path of culture because it, it, it I think it could be painted very easily that he is upholding the image of his people, which is that of a crude but powerful, like like dwarves are prideful and powerful, yep. and it's dwarves that, what is it, swim with little hairy women. <laughs> like like he, he could very easily just be leaning into that image. It's the eight that's going to say it out loud yep. in a room filled with people to get a response. Right, though. And you also, you can't say that when you've also seen Balin on screen. True. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I suppose, now I'm going to argue against that. If if I talk in a large room to lots of people about going swimming with little hairy women, I'm also aggressively getting a lot of attention in that moment. So Right. But he's not talking to a, it's not a large room full of people. He's drunk. Yeah. All right, I'm I'm willing to give you. I'm right. I'm, I'm losing bad here. <laughs> an eight. You got Theoden as a nine. I got Theoden as a three. It's gonna yeah. be a, another one of these typings on the arrow. On the arrow. So yeah. what's the story with nines? Nines move to the center of that body triad, and where eights use conflict to sort of figure out who has the power nines avoid conflict at all costs nines want things to be peaceful and easy and they avoid conflict wherever and whenever they can and often to their own detriment and uh, we discussed aragorn and treebeard both as excellent representations of nines and i think that my my quick and easy pitch for Theoden as a nine is he seems like someone who is much more withdrawn. And like, I see a lot of those three characteristics, but I see a, a, a withdrawn person exhibiting them. And mm. that moves me to nine. I hear all that. And of course my move frequently here is going to be, this is a stressed out character. Sure. And who really is having a hard time with the world itself and often is seeking to make everything peaceful. But I do think that comes out of a relational place. And I think that his posture as a king often is very visual in its dynamics. So of all things, I'm talking about threes again here. Bang, bang, right back (laughs) to back. This starts with just the beginning. Um, He obviously has lost... Maybe he's lost control in some ways when he's been possessed by Saruman. But there's right. a, a, a very strong visual image here that he is not happy about. And when he throws Wormtongue out the door, his complaint is... Your leech craft 
would have had me crawling on all fours like a beast. And that's a, you have insulted my image as a king in front of the people. Right. Let me actually go to the, just a couple of the, the three things and, and then we can start citing things. Um, I think that he has a goal-oriented He also has a very dark hopefulness. And I find that is a heroic side to his threeness that he is future problem-solving with Eowyn in terms of making sure that she knows that she will be queen when he's dead. Mm-hmm. I have left instruction. The people are to follow your rule in my stead. Take up my seat in the Golden Hall. Long may you defend Edoras if the battle goes ill. But he also, as he is riding off to his death and the death of many of his men, is reframing it in such a way as they see it as a success. Mm. Arise! Arise, riders of Theoden! Spears shall be shaken! Shields shall be splintered! A sword day! A red day! This is a glorious day imagery. And all of that coming out of his heart seems like the sort of values that a three would hold. Yeah. So that's what I got. Yeah. So um, the two big lines for me, I'll start with when he's having a conversation with Aragorn and some of his other advisors. And like they're, they're talking about the fact that uh, Saruman is, is coming with like Sauron's army is on its way and, and we can either ride out to meet them or we can go hide in our fortress. And Theoden says, I know what it is you want of me, but I will not bring further death to my people. I will not risk open war. Open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. And there, there's just this, this of avoidance of the reality of the situation and then, like the his decision is to retreat to safety. It it's to back away. It uh, they they withdraw to the safety of this fortress as opposed to engaging in the conflict in front of them. Yep. And if I was looking at this with slightly clearer eyes, I would have definitely recognized that that is a stressful move from a three going and picking up some of the retreat of nine. So, yeah, you win. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, my other big point was um, his... It's not nihilism, but it is a sort of resignation, like a like almost listlessness of... Uh, the, the specific line is... So much death. What can men do against such reckless hate? Like like that that line just like it speaks to the language of my heart. I think that that's spot on, and that man is stressed. Also, it is a stressful move from three to nine. <laughs> to even go further, there he has failed. Yep, ain't nothing he can do. Yep. The next turn is real interesting because Aragorn comes to him and says, "Right out." Ride out and meet them. For death and glory. For Rohan. 
for your people. And Theoden all of a sudden sees this as something that he can do. There's an action. And glory. And that's what he says. Yeah. So what he's thinking of in his last moments is, how's this all going to appear? Yep, absolutely. And that... And that is exactly what happens in Return of the King as well. There's a yep. lot of how does this appear? Yep. Um, I go to be with my father's mm-hmm. sort of language, you know? Um, and, and and the language that he uses in speaking to, like, like cheer, sort of cheering on his men yep. is very much the language of, of the, the incredibly, like, mature three leading people into a, a, a dangerous and scary situation. And yeah. then we are all in this together. That becomes his heroic side is I, I find this character just phenomenal on twofold. And I said this kind of earlier that this is a character that really appeals to me in my, as I get older, he knows where things have gone really badly. And yet he routinely steps forward as a great leader who is honest about where he's at, his inner life, how things are going, and yet frames things in a very inspirational way. Yeah. So when Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli go off to get the army of the dead, the men are standing around. They're like, they've lost hope, Mm -hmm. and they're leaving us. These leaders are leaving us. And they turn to him and say, we don't have enough men. That's why they're leaving. And he says, no, we don't have enough men, but we're going to meet the army of darkness. He leaves because there is no hope. He leaves because he must. Too few have come. We cannot defeat the armies of Mordor. No. We cannot. But we will meet them in battle nonetheless. And and even their leaving, he reframes. Yeah. He says, they're, they're leaving because of their own business. Don't worry about them. Like the mm-hmm. like the the way that he says it is is very much like this isn't something you need to worry about. The thing in front of you is what you need to worry about. He won't call to Gondor. Why not? Feels like that yeah. might be about appearances. Yep. yep. <laughs> they didn't help me. I'm not going to help them. Yeah. After Helm's Deep, he stands in front of the company, raises a glass. Tonight we remember those who gave their blood to defend this country. Hail the victorious dead. An honoring, a public honoring of people who have done something is what he wants mm-hmm. for himself when he dies. And yeah. he's doing it for others. That seems yeah. very three-ish to me. Yep. But it, again, it, the thing that I think is not very three-ish is how honest he is. He is. He just sets his heart out there half the time right. in front of... And especially in front of Eowyn. Yeah, there's there's a there's an introspection and a level of self-awareness that threes don't really carry or particularly exhibit that I I I think shows his his maturity and also potentially his his like could be that he has a really strong four wing. Mm-hmm. That he's he's much more in touch with the things going on inside of him. Yep. Last thing for me is just that relationship with Eowyn, I think, really exposes his motive and heart. And there's a line where she comes to him 
And he's telling her that he's going to give her power. Take up my seat in the golden hall. What other duty would you have me do, my lord? Duty? No. I would have you smile again. You shall live to see these days renewed. No more despair. That is a very visual request. I mm-hmm. want to see something of your appearance, and that would just be at his heart that he longs for. He obviously smiles, communicate lots about the person, but it's it's what's being conveyed from a person their appearance that's just part of the language. Yeah, you know? and and it's it's also a um, the intention behind it. Like obviously, there's a lot to be said about older men telling younger women to smile. But <laughs> I, in this particular instance, I think there's, there's an intention behind it that, that I, I want you to, to be happy again. There's, there's a, a yep. very emotional, like, like a heart center focus about what he wants for her. Yeah. That's Whereas like, like a nine would be, I want you to live your life. Potentially, like yep. I, I, I think a three is much more likely to be. I want, I want you to experience fullness of of your emotions. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. Having a nine parent, I can confirm. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what she said to me all the time. Yeah. On his, uh, he's he's been severely injured and is dying on the ground. Anyone comes to him. And that is the place where he says, I know your face. And she's smiling. So there's a good completing of the circle there. My eyes dark. No. No. After she says, I'm going to save you. His last words to her. You already did. Just like Darth Vader, by the way. <laughs> or did Darth Vader say it just like they had I need to look that up. I should have looked that up. I don't know if that's in the book. Yeah. You have to let me go. And notice this and notice the underlying feeling. I go to my father's. In whose mighty company I shall not now feel ashamed. Uh, I should have watched the last little bit. <laughs> those, those extended cuts are too damn long. <laughs> yeah, you're right. He's a three. They get in the three. Truth be told, there I did not finish all of the movies for my notes. They're it, so spent, damn long. It took forever. And by a certain point, you've got enough. <laughs> That's what it was. Like, I got man, that I one off the internet of where... Theoden's top five lines. <laughs> All right. Well, last one here for this episode. We're going to jump to the ones. Which I think this might be one of the most important arguments that we've ever had. Gosh. Me arguing for one and you not. I can't, I can't believe. And see, so I can't make a slam dunk reference this time because uh, now I'm, 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 who knows what's going to happen. 
TJ has Boromir as a one, and I got Boromir as a six. So and the joke here is that I type everyone as a one, and TJ <laughs> is very familiar with sixes. So this is a strange world that we have just entered into. Uh, what's the skinny on ones? So ones, the last of the that body triad, ones are very concerned about doing what's right, about being good for goodness sake, about making sure their their actions and the things that drive their actions are are motivated in goodness and and uh, because there is an order to the universe and if everything is in line with that order, then everything will go well. And they want to not only be good, but they also want to help you live your best life by here are the ways that you can improve things. And that in- extends to things and and spaces and and ideas and, and everything about the world can be improved and ones want to help move the world toward better. Bing. I got two big arguments for Boromir as a six just to start out. The first is just notice visually the symbol of Boromir is a horn signaling that he's in trouble. The horn of Gondor. Boromir. And that just strikes me as a great (laughs) visual for a six. Like, I'm carrying around this huge horn just in case something goes badly so I can signal for help. Because that, 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 that things can often go badly. You'll know this, TJ. Sure, yeah. I mean, you need, need other people's help. You got to think yeah. through these things. The second thing is I think Boromir ends up being, like, has a narrative function, kind of like C-3PO, where it's like everything out of this guy's mouth is what might go wrong in this as you will know, is, is a characteristic for some sixes of verbal processing their fears. And it's used narr- narratively here, but we could just go down the list of like nearly half of his dialogue is about some future obstacle problem, something that might get him. True. Which we could go through at length if you wanted to, but. Right. I don't think we need to. <laughs> uh, so. First, about your uh, the horn theory, uh, I'm just gonna say I think that's nonsense. I think that's <laughs> nothing. Uh, I have no response beyond <laughs> that. The fact a, that how about this? Does a one carry a big ass horn all over the place? That seems very. I mean, if I, if the one is a captain of one. Gondor, maybe <laughs> it's part of the uniform. Uh, yeah, because he has to like like it, he he is. Not only a warrior, but also a leader, and the horn is part of that leadership. Okay, because it it's not just to warn people of danger; it's also to call men to his side and yeah, and to to gather and and to alert and, <laughs> and get everyone's attention. And these all seem very sixish kind of reasons for or one ish or it's just a function of sort of medieval lore that we don't know enough about all right all right i i <laughs> yeah i i think you're reading way too much into the horn so i, like my I don't argument. really have that much to respond if you were if you were arguing for six you would have loved that horn argument yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then regarding the 
the the ways that his he sort of expresses fear. I don't read that as fear so much as so he's essentially entirely and eternally focused on Gondor. He he's not it it's not like the the way that his language expresses these things it's not about how everything is going to go badly it's about there's there's a heavy focus on gondor and and it's it's all about what the bad things that are going to happen to gondor and and to me like the the way that this expresses itself it comes out much more in the if we don't do things my way these are the bad things that are going to happen in that sort of unhealthy one prophetic, almost pharisaical kind of expression. And if we fail, what then? What happens when Sauron takes back what is his? My, let me, let me hit that for two seconds. I think I see it as less idealistic and I feel like he's an attacher. He's attaching for security this would play into how this works for him threefold. He's attached to his father, but there is a move once the ring appears on the scene that he sees that's a better place for me to attach for my security. I can see the idealism there. This is how we're going to fix the problem. At the end, he finds that he attaches to his true king, and that's how that whole first movie ends it really is i think the center of that movie in fact is is boromir's journey to the point where he elevates aragorn as as the king but there is a strong allegiance there i agree with that it is over the world of men will fall and all will come to darkness and my city to ruin I do not know what strength is in my blood, but I swear to you, I will not let the White City fall. Nor our people fail. Our people. Our people. I would have followed you, my brother. On the one side, that would be the right thing to do. On the sick side, it feels, again, like finding your place in the way that the system is, as it were, mm-hmm. how things ought to be. There's a, It's very emotional on that front, it seems to me as well. But yeah, that's what I got. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see him attached to his father at all. I think he is, he is a responsible son and a captain of Gondor. Mm-hmm. But when there's a scene where he uh, he and his he has led his men to victory in Osgiliath, and he's talking to Faramir, and then Faramir notices that Denethor is coming. He's here, and and Boromir says, "Oh, one moment of peace cannot give us that." Where is he? Where is Gondor's finest? Where is my firstborn? Father. <laughs> I think I think that he is 
only attached to his father in the sense of this is what a good son does. So he'll he'll obey his father. He'll protect and sort of uphold the stewardship. But I, I don't think that he has any real attachment to the man Denethor. Is there a difference there between the... We talked a lot about duty with Sam as a six. Mm-hmm. It seems like that could be read into his motive and behavior. Yeah, so uh, our, our discussion about Sam... Uh, was between Sam as a two or a six. And and there's a lot of earning that happens there uh, with twos and sixes. And th- there's a lot of similarities because of that. And I think there's a lot of similarities between ones and sixes right. for v- a lot of similar reasons. I think ones are doing what's right because it's the right thing to do. And sixes are doing what's right because it's what will keep them safe. And I don't see that in Boromir. I I think that he is legitimately thinks that taking the ring back to Gondor is the right thing to do. Sure. And anyone who disagrees with him is wrong. Do sixes pitch answers to problems? Yes. Sometimes. They're they're more likely to point out the problem and and be asked for the solution. Yeah. I mean, so going down that road, the pitching of the problem is again what I just hear all over his language. One doesn't simply walk into Mordor. If we fail, what then? They have a cave troll. <laughs> if Gollum alerts them to our whereabouts, it will make crossing the river more dangerous. It's this routinely pitching the problem that's there. We've talked in our Villainous Six episode, we talked about how Villainous Sixes are often the second to some higher authority figure. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would see as very obvious in their relationship, uh, he and Denethor, that sure. Denethor has that position of power and Boromir is the heavy. But I think I think Sixes would be more focused on that specific relationship like like i i think the 6 would be about upholding uh, upholding denethor mm-hmm. the 1 is about upholding gondor yeah i can see that, that makes and sense. and also like to the to the point of like he's he's continually pitching problems but he's also continually pitching solutions to the problems one does not simply walk into mordor it's black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is evil there that does not sleep. And the great eye is ever watchful. It is a barren wasteland, riddled with fire and ash and dust. The very air you breathe is a poisonous fume. Not with 10,000 men could you do this. It is folly. The right thing to do would be to take it back to Minas Tirith and use it against Sauron. It is a gift. A gift to the foes of Mordor. Why not use this ring? Long has my father, the steward of Gondor, kept the forces of Mordor at bay. By the blood of our people are your lands kept safe. Give Gondor the weapon of the enemy. Let us use it against him. Feels again, I suppose, just 
to cut to like really base underlying feelings, he feels like more of a fearful person than an angry person. Oh, I disagree with that entirely. That's it feels like that's in his just in his language that I've just stated. It's also in terms of how he talks about fear. Like in that last in his last dialogue with Frodo, it's almost as though he's weaponizing fear. We're all afraid, Frodo. But to let that fear drive us to destroy what hope we have. Don't you see that is madness? I ask only for the strength to defend my people. There's your point. What chance do you think you have? They will find you. They will take the ring. And you will beg for death before the end. I see your mind. You will take the ring to Sauron! You will betray us! You go to your death. And the death of us all! Curse you! Curse you! And all our place! The weaponizing of fear there seems strong. What is, what's the one I, side there? I don't disagree with that. I think the unhealthy one is weaponizing fear, and he's saying it in a really angry way. Yeah. that Like that whole interaction with Frodo at the end. Yeah, it's filled with anger. It's Angry. filled with anger. Mm. Dare we say frustration? Yeah. That could work. I, I can see that it's working. Okay. If you would but lend me the ring, and then he says, Why, Why do you recoil? I am no thief. You are not yourself. Like, I, I, I don't want you to think I would steal this right. while I'm trying to steal it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like your argument. There's, there's also, there's, there's one particular thing that is also in that scene with when they take back Osgiliath, which again is part of the extended scenes. So he gives this big speech to the men. It's a great, glorious leader of men kind of speech. <laughs> Good speech. Nice and short. Leaves more time for drinking. <laughs> this is a probably the most secure moment that we see for Boromir. Right. And what does he say? <laughs> Remember today, little brother. Today, life is good. <laughs> Let's go drinking. Let's party. <laughs> it's true. On the flip side, on the security side, uh, the last thing that Aragorn says to him is, be at peace, son of Gondor. You wanting to elevate him into his secure self in the afterlife. That's just not as good an argument as the as let's let's go drinking. And also um, be at peace is just a, a general end of life kind of sentiment. You could say that about most types, I think. Yeah, but that doesn't work into my argument. <laughs> <laughs> um Well you got uh, me there. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Okay. Yeah, the desiring the system that's going to make everything work mm -hmm. in fighting for the ideal that has hit you. Yeah, and I, I think there's there's idealism throughout his character. The way the the things that he is fighting for is an idealistic vision of the future. Definitely an earner. Yeah, for sure an earner. Finds himself trying to repair uh, a broken family. It's clear that his father and younger brother don't connect. Right. 
there's some uh, some of the extended stuff is him speaking into that right model son in his father's eyes that may and parents of ones you kind of read that kind of relationship yeah there's there. a there's a um we as as parents we all do damage to our children but there's a particular kind of pedestal holding that results in ones and threes yeah that's what i'm looking for yeah he does uh show a lot of anger at himself after failing frodo and it moves him to action to mm-hmm. try and repair it with yep what he does for the other hobbits and 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 i think that that not just anger at himself, but acknowledgement of of him having done the wrong thing extends. Uh, that that's part of his last words with Aragorn. Mm-hmm. I tried to take the ring from him. Forgive me. I did not see. I have failed you all. It's it's this clear admonition of what he did wrong. Mm-hmm. I think a six would do that as well. Am I wrong? I feel like a six would be much more like I'm terrible than I did this thing wrong. Like sixes do are are much more likely to chain things. So the fact that he tried to take the ring means that he's wholly terrible. Mm-hmm. is much more likely to be sort of six-ish. Like right. Ones are going to focus on the thing that they did wrong. Yeah, here was my misstep. Yeah. That, there it is. It's not about himself and dying himself. It's about his physical failure. Right. Notice, and then Aragorn says, No, you fought bravely. You've kept your honor. Which is exactly what a one would want to hear. No, they mm-hmm. did something good in that situation. Yeah. Yep. Mm. All right. Folding that hand, seriously. Two dunks, just shoe-ins, swatted away by the great T.J. Wilson. Uh, hey, you know what, T.J.? If somebody was listening to this and they really loved us, they would give us some stars. You would think so. You would think that they would take the moment before they realized it was the outro to just give us some stars. Maybe we beat them. Maybe we snuck that in there. Or even a review. A review (laughs) is even better. If they would give us a review on our podcast, we would just do a little jig. And uh, it would make our week so happy. So uh, you can do that on iTunes, by the way. You can see all the links to all of our stuff at aroundthecircle.org. And if you want, we connect with folks on Twitter and the Instagram. And we have moved all of our stuff. Not all of our stuff. Half of our stuff is going to get moved over to Patreon. And we're going to start doing some fun stuff over there. If you haven't ever actually gone to Patreon to look up some of your favorite podcasts, just it's a delight. Some of some folks who do a much better job with their podcasts than we presently do. I, I love the stuff on Patreon for the podcast I love. So well worth going over there for all the things. That's what I got. You got anything else? I got nothing, man. He's CJ Wilson. He's officially in the lead. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Jeff Cook. And who you aren't isn't interesting, uh, especially if you're down seven to two in your typing <laughs> throwdown. Hey, you got two. A two. A two. <laughs> <laughs>